Hi, I'm Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to bring you our fifth episode of Season 2 for China Uncovered. If this is your first time joining us, China Uncovered is actually a part of our broader China Transparency Project, where we focus and highlight data-heavy transparency projects that are being conducted by our friends all across the globe. Today, our conversation is focused on China's economy. We are just coming off of the heels of the Biden-Xi summit last week. And while there was plenty to discuss, I was actually surprised at how little emphasis was seemingly placed on China and the U.S.'s ongoing trade dispute and just the relative treatment, actually, um, on economic issues in general, especially vis-a-vis security concerns and especially Taiwan. I think many of our listeners, like me, find the Chinese economy to be a bit opaque. Um, Its economic model is quite different from the U.S.'s and from so many other countries all across the globe. And it's this kind of odd mix of capitalism with a communist command economy of sorts. So I think it's difficult not just to understand how it's functioned and how it's informed by the CCP's own goals, but also to understand China's economy and its economic rise relative to other countries around the globe. So we're going to be delving into questions just like this, um, this very subject, and help us hopefully to get a better grasp of these issues. And to do so, I'm delighted to welcome back my former Heritage colleague, Riley Walters. Riley and I started at Heritage actually just 15 days apart way back in 2013. We were desk mates, and now he's moved on to greener pastures, serving as deputy director of the Japan chair at the Hudson Institute. Um, Riley has a wide array of expertise, including, of course, Japan, um, but also economic issues and challenges in Asia, especially vis-a-vis China. So, Riley, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. I think this is, um, one, welcoming you back to the old stomping grounds, but two, like the second or third time that you've co-hosted this mm-hmm. podcast with me. <laughs> no, it's it's uh, great to be back, especially to get to engage on this wonderful podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Riley. Um, so, can you give us just a 20,000-foot level? overview of China's economy and maybe lend some insight into how economic concerns did play into the recent virtual summit between uh, President Biden and Chairman Xi Jinping. Yeah, you know, I think you've sort of uh, already hit it on the head. Uh, You know, if we're talking about looking at this from the 20-foot level, you know, not many people are really familiar with the U.S.-China economic relationship, let alone the Chinese economy, and so it, it could be kind of muddled. It could kind of be lost in a lot of the uh, the media and rhetoric. You know, you might hear things uh, about how China is either the largest or the second largest economy in the world. Uh, you might also hear things in the news about uh, companies like uh, Alibaba or Chinese uh, China's real estate developer Evergrande, and uh, that really kind of makes it hard to grasp where where are we talking about with the Chinese economy. Uh, I mean, it it is a large uh, system, and so it can be pretty difficult. One of the things that uh, I find unique about the Chinese economy is the size, of course, of its state-owned enterprise or the the state-supported industries there. And, uh, you know, these companies are so large. I mean, many of them, actually, quite a few of them are listed on the Forbes list of largest companies in the world. 
and you know the, what that means essentially is you know these are these are mega companies and they can have distorting effects not just on the Chinese economy but on the global economy as well. You know, if we're talking about um, uh, the proliferation of, of competition between you know American and Chinese companies or uh, Chinese and Japanese companies and so on and so forth. And so uh, with these distorting effects, uh, you know there's a lot of concern about fair competition and, and things like that. And so one of the things that uh, you know we just saw recently, actually, um, the U.S. trade representative for the United States, Catherine Tai, she was actually just in Japan recently to restart an initiative with the Japanese and Europeans to sort of address this issue. Now they don't they don't necessarily uh, mention China explicitly, but they talk about uh, negotiating and finding ways to deal with large state-owned enterprises and the effects that they can have on the economy, uh, not just domestic economies, regional economies, but global economy as well. And this is really great because it, it's an initiative that actually started under the Trump administration that we can now continue under the Biden administration. But what it goes to show is that, you know, again, within China, there are large state-supported companies. And, uh, you know, this really has questions for the efficiency and economic freedom that exists within China and, and what that can mean. Now, actually, if we're, if we're talking about, I, I think we've sort of mentioned this in, in previous podcasts as well, you know, the Heritage Foundation has this great index called the Index of Economic Freedom, where <laughs> they try and list economies based on their, on their relative freedom. Uh, and what we find is that uh, China has almost always exclusively existed in what's called the mostly unfree uh, category in this index, not not like the U.S. or Japan or, or mainly Europe. And so uh, it, it's really fascinating. And I'm, I'm so glad that we can kind of talk about this question today about China's economy and where it stands sort of relative to itself and relative to other economies that are basically what we consider free. Mm, yeah, thanks so much for setting the tone on that. And also, yeah, great call. Index of Economic Freedom, everybody should check that out. Um, it's a really helpful heritage product. Um, it's now my pleasure to bring in our special guest, our guest of honor, Nargiza Solidjanova. Nargiza is director of the Rhodium Group's China Projects team, which is responsible for the firm's integrated analysis of China's economic system, its performance, and the outlook for its global engagement. Previously, Nargiza was director for economics and trade with the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, and she has published on a broad range of topics, including strategic competition, China's role in global governance, and the alignment of commerce and national security concerns. Nargiza, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. <laughs> awesome. Well, to kick things off, can you share with us a little bit about Rhodium Group and the China Projects team that you head up? Of course. Um, you've already given me a, a pretty excellent introduction, uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll hide my blushes. But, you know, Rhodium Group, um, I think, is, is well known for its independent research and very kind of integrated data-driven analysis and thought leadership on China and on energy and climate issues. And um, I'm the director of the China Projects team, which, as you noted, um, takes a kind of a pretty cross-cutting approach to analyzing China's economy, the evolution of China's model, um, and its global engagement. I'll just highlight very briefly, you know, within the China Projects team, uh, we have a kind of particular focus on China's macroeconomic conditions, economic statecraft, and global footprint. 
China's technology policy and innovation policy, and also sort of gradually expanding into China's climate policy and this question of low carbon transition. So the Pathfinder project, I mean, it sounds pretty diverse. I mean, what sort of methodologies are you using to kind of gather information on, on all these separate projects? So maybe it, it will be helpful if I give sort of a bit of an introduction to the Pathfinder yeah, project please. itself. Um, and, you know, this is um, an idea that comes as a result of many, many years of just tracking um, China's, um, China's development. You know, its precursor sort of most immediately was the China Dashboard Project, which looked at um, how China's economy was doing in the 10 areas that have been identified in the third plenum decision. Just seeing, you know, how far it's progressing, whether or not it's meeting the goals it set for itself. And then the China Pathfinder project, which is a project between Rhodium and the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomic Center, really takes that idea further and says, all right, um, we're going to look at China and see how it compares to 10 OECD economies. So we'll look at the top 10 economies by GDP, um, looking really in, in six core areas of clusters, um, which we kind of separate into internal and external. On the internal side, looking at China's financial system, competition policy, and innovation system. And then on the external side, looking at trade investment and portfolio, in, sort of direct investment openness and portfolio investment openness. Um, and, you know, the, each of those six clusters has within it indicators uh, that are pretty diverse, uh, and we can sort of talk about individual ones. Um, they, uh, it's a combination of sort of de jure and de facto indicators, input and output indicators as well. Um, but it really uses 2010 as a benchmark year to say, here is kind of the starting off point that we are going to use as a frame of reference, and then to see where, do, where does China appear now against these top 10 OECD economies. That includes, of course, the you know, United States, um, UK, but also, you know, uh, Japan, South Korea, Germany, etc. Um, and when deciding kind of how to do this, there were a couple of different ideas in mind. It needed to be something that was accessible, where you could go in and say, oh, I see, I see why you are using this to think about how market competition evolves, for example. Um, it needed to be something that was a kind of correlated to what is essential in the definition of a modern open economy. Um, it needed to be consistent, so uh, data had to be available for China and for all the economies in the sample. Um, and it needed to be available, right? So there has, there, uh, these sort of, we wanted to make sure that there wasn't an excessive lag or there were major gaps. And there were a few where we had to sort of build out this, um, the data to make sure it was kind of as comprehensive as it could be. But, and this is an important, but you know, China's economic system has a lot of very unique characteristics, which are very difficult to find uh, in this kind of a cross-cutting, cross-country way. And so each of the six clusters actually has inside of it China-specific indicators. And they really touch upon some of these more kind of China-specific aspects, like the presence of SOEs and the dominance of the state and the banking system, for example. You know, those could not be compared across the entire sample, but we use them to highlight those very specific aspects of China's relationship to the world and to its sort of evolution of its domestic economy. And then in terms of, you know, resourcing and kind of what sort of data to use, um, the, uh, the methodology is very thoroughly documented, right? We really wanted to make sure 
that um, anyone who is looking at this report, who's interacting with the dashboard is able to go and really see what indicators we used, how we use them. Um, and there are a couple that are proprietary. So Rhodium has um, uh, proprietary data um, that we've been able to leverage for this, but by and large, um, it's from open sources, from sort of rigorously tested sources as well. So IMF, OECD, World Bank, just to name a few. That's a really great overview of the project writ large. You know, you're steeped in this uh, data all the time. What trends, if any, does the data on China's economic development show? And are they converging or diverging from some of the other open economy norms? So when you use the China Pathfinder dashboard, sort of the first thing you see is that there's been some very obvious progress between China in 2010 and China in 2020. And then the second thing you see uh, most likely is that there is still quite a bit of ways to go. Uh, and that is not surprising perhaps, um, although in some cases, um, China has kind of moved fairly close into the range. And right, that's an important point to highlight here, of course. You know, we, you, we have a, a variable sort of that's the open economy average. But when we also show the individual performance of all the 10 OECD economies in the sample, and you see that in some cases, like on the market competition side, for example, China is pretty much very close still to the, to the low side of the distribution here. But on others, like the innovation system, for example, it's very, very close. Um, and in one case, China in 2020 uh, actually managed to get ahead of one of the economies in the sample. But you know, this question of convergence and divergence is really at the heart of the China Pathfinder project. Um, really looking at these categories, um, China has made the biggest leap in trade openness. Um, and that really doesn't surprise one. But then even within that particular cluster, when you look at individual components, you see that there is a big gap between openness and things like goods versus openness in services or in provision of digital services in particular. You know, looking at the other side of what sort of represents a modern economy, um, competition policy, as I mentioned, big gap. Portfolio investment openness um, is, is the one where China is really far on the distribution when you look um, against the OECD average or even individual OECD economies. So overall, while there is progress over the last decade, if you look at the numbers, you see that there is um, still a ways to go. Um, and actually, in some cases, there's been a bit of a rollback. So for example, you know, China's FDI intensity as a share of GDP um, in 2020 is actually lower than it was in 2010. That's, uh, that's actually, I, I find that interesting because that's a lot of the focus these days when it comes to people talking about the trade war with China, you know, is it really having an effect of encouraging companies not to invest in China? A couple of things, you know, you've mentioned that the Pathfinder project uses 2010 as a benchmark. Can you maybe explain why you chose that specific year? So, uh, you know, a couple of different reasons. Uh, one, it's a nice round number. Mm -hmm. uh, never, never let it be said that comparing 2010 to 2020 was just like not an easy <laughs> appealing framework. But also, you know, um, you also have to consider kind of the time horizon, right? A lot of the economies coming out of the, um, coming out of the global financial crisis, you know, 2008, 2009, sort of highly disruptive. So 2010 is sort of slightly more normalized. This also predates uh, Xi Jinping mm -hmm. um, and his accession. Uh, so that's that's an important year also then to spotlight. And I imagine, you know, if you went all the way back to 
2000, you'd actually probably see a big, an even bigger uh, increase in improvement, given this is you know pre-ascension to the World Trade Organization. Um, the uh, one one other question, sort of going back to sort of this divergence. Obviously, you know the United States uh, is not always the average, right? You, you mentioned using 10 OECD countries as the average, but the United States is a little bit different. Um, given that many of our listeners here are probably from the United States, can you maybe discuss a little bit of the difference between the U.S. and China when it comes to uh, uh, the the Pathfinder project? Of course. And, you know, the United States um, tends to cluster pretty close to the high side of the distribution if you look at the numbers, right? But not always. There is actually a, a good deal of variation, which is an important point to keep in mind. But where you see kind of most difference between the two are in competition policy and then openness to investment, both direct investment and portfolio investment. There are a couple of different reasons for that, um, and a lot of them are very intuitive. So, for example, you know, the presence of state-owned enterprises in China, um, the continued involvement of the government in making determinations, both at the sort of industry or sector level, but also occasionally intruding into the behavior of, kind of individual companies. Um, but also looking at just the volumes of investment that the United States continues to attract, which is kind of not insignificant. Um, kind of there is, uh, and then we you know we can we can kind of go down into each individual cluster and think about that. But those I think those areas probably would not surprise a lot of observers when you think about where China is vis-a-vis -vis the United States. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that we sort of as as academics as think tanks folks um, that we hear about when either engaging with of academics in, in China or, or officials is that, you know, Beijing, they want to sort of create their own economic model, um, but it's not entirely distinct from previous economic models. I, 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 in the past, I hear a lot, I used to hear a lot about how actually Beijing wanted to emulate a lot of, let's say, Japan's economic policies back in the 60s and 70s, maybe a little bit in the 80s. How does China's economic development now compared to that, to, let's say compared to Japan and other neighbors in Asia. Right. So you, you're completely correct, right? China did not invent this idea of an export-driven development model, right? Japan kind of laid down the path there, and a lot of countries since then have attempted to copy it. Um, you know, there are two um, East Asian economies in the sample: Japan and South Korea. Um, and in terms of trade openness, for example, China 2020 sits kind of in between uh, South Korea and Japan. Uh, but there is a significant gap um, when it comes to all other categories. Um, Japan actually scores the highest of all the economies, uh, open market economies in our sample when it comes to innovation, while China scores the lowest, um, even given sort of the major progress that it has done since 2010. That's great. Can you highlight some of the unique challenges that are at play when you collect data on China or the Chinese government's practices? I know you mentioned that you had access to a range of different data sources, but do you think there are any unique challenges um, that are at play like versus traditional data collection um, because it's China that, that you're analyzing as part of this um, project? So definitely there, you know, as I mentioned kind of at, at the top, um, China's economy is so idiosyncratic in so many different ways 
um, you know, and part of the design behind China Pathfinder was to really make sure that we could make this comparable across all of the economy. So that presented you know, a challenge all its own. And then, of course, some of the features of China's economic system, um, like the presence of party committees, for example, in companies, that makes it really challenging to try to understand how to um, not describe anecdotally, but rigorously in a quantitative fashion, the role of the state within the economy or individual companies. Um, you know, one of the one of my favorite clusters um, to look at is um, the innovation system cluster. Because I think, you know, given the general focus on, on China's uh, uh, efforts to kind of move up the value added chain, looking at how China is doing within that um, is, is difficult. And so you had to really use a lot of proxies for getting at this question of what is quality innovation, for example, right? It's not enough to have lots of patents. We, I think, heard a lot about patents that are perhaps not of great quality. Um, and so, you know, uh, doing things like looking at triadic patent families instead, which are patents that are filed in, you know, the major jurisdictions, European Union, Japan, the United States, to highlight the specific quality of research. So we, we did quite a bit of that, you know, trying to get at or triangulate will be a particularly good indicator. And then the other thing I'll just highlight uh, was just that the data were missing, and it wasn't just mm -hmm. actually China. Um, some of the OECD economies in the sample mm -hmm. did not necessarily have a complete array of data that we could use. And so again, we had to go and see where we could fill in those gaps, uh, where we could find indicators that would be robust across all of the clusters that we're using. And you have to remember that in the China Pathfinder framework, we have over 30 core indicators that are distributed within the, within the clusters. And then we have over 30 that are the supplemental indicators that are just unique to China. Mm, it sounds like it really does require <laughs> some extra attention to detail and, you know, looking in the hard to find places to, to get all the information <laughs> that you need on China. It's hard enough finding everything uh, just on the U.S. economy, you know, uh, data <laughs> available. I can't imagine what it's like to find, uh, you know, 10 OECD countries <laughs> and including China. I mean, oh, OK. <laughs> the, um, you know, one of the things I find really interesting about this sort of this question of you know China's economic development is you know in Washington in the U.S. I think even in the international forum we we mar to be called a market economy isn't just necessarily rhetorical right it's not just it's not just something you can attribute uh, and claim uh, even though as much as China tries to claim that it it is a market economy but there's there's actual uh, it, it's not just rhetorical there there is specific meaning. And uh, either benefits that come with being considered a market economy. Can you can you tell us a little bit about what it means to be considered a market economy and how your research uh, advances or undermines China's own case that they claim that they already are one? Yeah, I think you know this is uh, in many respects kind of a defining question when we look at how China is doing, right? Because they. So Chinese government certainly speaks a lot about China's role in, at the global stage and wanting to have a bigger say and sort of bigger participatory power. And of course, it's, it's, not, it's not very simple. Uh, I think we would not be having this conversation, so it's easy to settle. Of course, I think as, as a lot of the readers or listeners will know, the Department of Commerce has a six-step test to determine whether a country is a market economy and includes things like, you know, um, uh, permissiveness for JVs and foreign ownership, currency convertibility, things like that. But, you know, looking at the China Pathfinder framework here, 
um, despite the kind of the open economy average. Now, when you look at the distribution among the 10 OECD countries in the sample, you see pretty quickly that there isn't just one way. They tend to cluster together. That is very true. But there, uh, there isn't a score or a number or even a pattern of behavior that it clearly characterizes what it means to be a market economy, even you know, economies like the UK and the United States, for example, which are fairly close, um, still have a lot of variability within that. Um, and you know, the, um, the, the other part of it that I think is important, however, despite this variation, there are a few characteristics that are common to all of the open market economies in the clusters. And this includes some fairly you know, um, straightforward things, openness to fair competition, market discipline, um, the government preventing abuses um, that are sort of you know, extraordinary, like you know, building up of monopolies and other things like that, um, a financial system that's deep and fluid, uh, that prices credit effectively and allocates capital in a way that's driven by economic factors and not by you know, strategic or national security preferences, um, a system that allows for capital to enter and exit the economy with very little obstruction, you know, low barriers to trade, very low intervention by the state, um, an innovative uh, ecosystem that is robust and largely free of profound state intrusion. And so when you look at all of that, you know, there, it really underscores the idea that there are no varieties of capitalism, but there is a common flavor that kind of comes into that. And the aggregated scores um, really show that, you know, China has um, still a ways to go to even meet some of the economies that are sort of a lower end of the distribution. And certainly when you look at the average score there too, I think the, um, the, the numbers really speak for themselves. There is a very clear separation in some aspects. China has traversed, again, pretty a, a big significant gap. And as you said earlier on, really, you know, between now and uh, 2020, China has come far. We have to give credit for that, right? But then we also have to say, what's next? Mm -hmm. The assessing what the path, uh, what is the path that the Chinese government chooses for this country is a core question and the ball Kind of as ever in the court of Chinese policymakers, they're going to do uh, what they believe is important for them. And then if you look kind of at where China Pathfinder shows they have been and how far they still have to go, there are some very serious questions to raise about that. Many of our listeners, they might conduct research themselves. They might be a part of the policy community or part of academia. Um, you know, you have such a robust data set here, but what are some areas of China's economy that, in your opinion, are under-researched or you think really merit additional um, detail-oriented attention? So you know, how much time do we have? Mm -hmm. uh, there's so much, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'll, I'll, just, I'll highlight just a few <laughs> um, that as a researcher, and they're, they're, we are legion in terms of you know, really trying to understand this, who are really grappling with this. Like First and foremost, it is this idea of quantifying the role of the state in the economy. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Right? I think you can collect a lot of anecdotal evidence, and uh, you can collect some very rigorous um, information as well, and we include some of that in China Pathfinder, but there is still kind of a profound gap. And th there is no equivalency between an SOE in Norway and an SOE in China. 
right? They just function most of the time along very, very different lines. So the, the, just the name itself is kind of rather misleading or the description of what a company is. I think the other one, uh, which I imagine a lot of people will kind of nod in agreement when I say it, it's looking at subsidies, right? How do you get a, get a full grasp of the level of support, the variety of support, the level of support, the mechanisms uh, that exist uh, within uh, China's uh, system for various industries, uh, local and subnational level entities. Um, just that, that, is, uh, that is something that's giving a lot of policymakers um, in many OECD economies lots of headaches, trying to figure out how to do that one. Another one that I think is really important, and you know, China Pathfinder um, tackles that in some respect, but still there's so much yet to go, is sort of judging this quality of innovation in China. We know the Chinese government has been spending an extraordinary amounts of money, and they've been, you know, every, every industrial plan that comes forward uh, sets goals and allocates priority. Uh, but sort of um, what have they gotten for it, right? And importantly, as some of the core drivers of China's growth heretofore are starting to really slow down, like the real estate crisis, for example, has really exposed a lot of that. You know, how much further is the current system of just throwing money in the problem is going to be able to sustain the Chinese government um, and the goals? And what does it mean for uh, you know, China's people, for uh, the innovation and the livelihood quality of life issues, sort of all of that, it's really closely tangled up. But it comes down to how effectively are you spending this and what are you getting out of it, what your priorities are. Well, Nargiza, I think you've given our uh, listeners marching orders here. There's so much work to be done. Um, and I think in some ways that's encouraging because I feel like, um, you know, as somebody who does research myself, it's always helpful to have those other ideas um, to be mulling about and, and thinking about as future projects, especially as the new year approaches. Last question for you. I would love to hear from you what actions you'd like to see in response to the findings of your work. Um, what are some of the most effective ways that policymakers, but I mean, I would add in here probably, you know, business folks and otherwise can make the best use of your data? Right. So, you know, China Pathfinder doesn't come with a list of like a 10 step checklist. Um, you know, <laughs> having, having read this data, here, here are the things that you must do. But it does it does make several recommendations and sort of at the very top of it is um, this sort of important reminder that we have lots of challenges and lots of uh, kind of problems uh, or questions that have been flagging US-China relationship or China's relationship with the world and how it engages. Uh, but you know, we, th there is a kind of an uneven distribution between what is an actual problem versus what's getting a lot of attention. Part of what China Pathfinder and its sort of very data-driven approach helps to highlight are areas where the convergence has been greater uh, versus areas where there's still quite a bit of divergence and just sort of allocate scarce attention from policymakers and business community and you know um, researchers like us on those areas that are still problematic versus areas that perhaps require a lot less attention. I mean, the, the core concept behind China Pathfinder, it is really looking at this idea of interoperability, right? When China acceded to the WTO, it has agreed to a series of standards uh, that it would do these things uh, to make its economy more open and to engage better with the world. And I think it's, it's very difficult to argue that in fact, China has not benefited from a closer integration with the world. But I think a lot of policymakers right now are looking at their relationship with China. They see the imbalances and they're kind of thinking, you know, how, what's next? How are we going to manage this and how to manage this effectively? 
I think, you know, the Pathfinder framework uh, really asked this question. Um, here's where China was in 2010. Uh, here's where it is in 2020. And of course, 2020 is in many respects an annus horribilis because of all of the disruptions that have been experienced. And some intrusion by the state um, across the board, not just in China, but in, in economies around the world is understandable. But going forward, right, there's already kind of China's policy is already on notice uh, for doing too much of that. And how much of that is going to continue is I think something that everyone's watching very closely and something that China Pathfinder is going to be trying to track quantitatively. Thank you, Narkiza, for giving our listeners a better understanding of China's lack of transparency in the economic space. We're just so grateful to you for, for joining us and giving us such a, a detailed understanding of the Rhodium Group's work and of your own work. Thank you. It's, it's been my pleasure. And, you know, I should know the China Pathfinder project is a multi-year effort, right? We're going to be putting out an annual report every year. And to keep everyone excited about China and its progress, we're actually doing quarterly updates as well. So every quarter between annual reports, we're doing an update that looks at key policy developments. Um, the next one's actually coming out very shortly. So you listeners should be able to read the quarterly update and listen to the podcast at the same time. Ah, that's so wonderful. We will be sure to link to that in our show notes. Thank you for that, Nargiza. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Yeah. And once again, thank you so much to Riley for co-hosting with me today. It's great to have you back at Heritage. Um, I know uh, our listeners always enjoy uh, when you're able to come for the program. Um, here, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I've no doubt that our listeners found this discussion incredibly helpful and insightful. As always, for those who are wanting to learn more, Heritage has our Water China Transparency Project, which you can access on our website. Like we said, this year was the first year that we released our China Transparency Report, and a second one is in the works for next year. I'll be sure to include a link to the website and the report in the show notes. Thank you again for tuning in to China Uncovered. This is a podcast that's dedicated to pulling back the veil on the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. And in two weeks from now, we're going to be back here bringing you another episode where we will discuss China's influence operations. Should be a really interesting discussion. Please don't forget to subscribe to China Uncovered. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your other favorite alternative podcast app. If you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We hope that you will join us next time. China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.